Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to IFTF's Future Now, a podcast where we spotlight the researchers, scientists, and innovative thinkers who are shaping the forces of our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer. In this season of Future Now, Marina Gorbis, IFTF Executive Director, is hosting thought-provoking conversations with guests involved in IFTF's Equitable Enterprise Initiative, which seeks to replace shareholder capitalism with a more humane, inclusive, and equitable approach to business practices. In this episode, Marina talks with the esteemed Bill Shields, former chair of the Labor and Community Studies Department at the City College of San Francisco. The conversation centers on Bill's 2021 book, Free City, and the fight for community college education. Marina and Bill dive into the profound influence that the California Labor School had on San Francisco's labor movement, and more importantly, how it shaped the fabric of community in this city. We certainly hope you'll enjoy it. Good afternoon, good morning, and welcome Bill Shields. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast on the future now. And thank you, by the way, for recommending the book, Free City to Read. It took up most of my weekend, but I was really happy and I was underlining, highlighting so many parts of the book. So hopefully we'll get to that. But before that, a little bit of an introduction. So Bill, you recently retired, right, as the chair of the Labor and Community Studies Department at City College in San Francisco, very well-known institution in the city. And the book you recommended, Free City, was all about that. And hopefully we'll get into that conversation. But originally, we found you because I read about the exhibit at the Tenderloin Museum in San Francisco about California Labor School. And I started reading about it and doing a little bit of research and actually visited the place and learned a lot about the school that existed in the 40s and 50s for about 20 years. And what was interesting to me about the school was it was a labor school, but it wasn't just focused on training for skills like to become a plumber or electrician. Some of that was that. But it staged theater productions and people studied philosophy and political education and all kinds of other things. It's a bit of an anomaly in today's world where so much of our narrative is about the skills gap and how we need to educate everybody for skills so they can get good jobs, which are out there in the market. I want to start with that. Let's talk about the labor school, California Labor School. Tell us about a little bit of history. You're a historian, right? In addition to a labor professor of labor relations. But let's talk about the school. What, what, what was that school? Why? What happened? Just a little bit of background. Thank you so much for having me, Marina. I think this is an exciting topic. The California Labor School was a very important institution in the life of San Francisco as a whole, and particularly in the labor movement of the 1940s and 50s, which we must connect to the incredible upsurge of labor organizing that happened in San Francisco, as well as around the country in the 1930s. So it's part of a long tradition of labor education that is connected to the idea of organizing to improve the conditions of work and life by working class people. So it's, I would call it one link in a chain. So it, it, 
coming out of that tradition, there had been a general strike in San Francisco in 1934 where the longshore workers, after suffering generations of extremely bad treatment on the waterfront in what was then key industry in San Francisco proper, staged the general, went out on strike, and after two months and some attack, it was led by police, the two strikers and strike supporters killed. The labor movement as a whole went out on something that's very unusual in U.S. history relative to other countries, a general strike. And that really transformed the waterfront and made the work there dignified and well-paid and a 30-hour work week at a time when people were just getting the 40-hour work week after generations of struggle. And as an aside, I should say that a 30-hour work week for blue-collar workers meant they had a lot of time for such things as education and self-improvement. And so created out of that the Waterfront Writers Group, Eric Hoffer, the longshoreman philosopher. And so it was no surprise then that once World War II starts and people are saying we need to institutionalize labor education, there had also been a great strike in 1937 in the hotels and in 1938. Women workers in Chinatown struck and were able to break the barrier that white unions had erected to them and fight their way into those unions. Really a breakthrough decade. So now we're into World War II. In 1942, the war's not going very well, but there's a very broad unity. The United States, the Soviet Union, capitalist and communist countries uniting to defeat fascism. That sent shockwaves and reverberations throughout the world in general. And in San Francisco, the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, were key in the formation of something that came to be called the California Labor School. It had been called the Tom Mooney Labor School after a noted labor radical and activist in San Francisco who was felt unjustly spent years in jail for a bombing that he wasn't involved with back during World War I. But it changed its name to the California Labor School. Not only the ILWU, which is therefore born in a general strike, very activist, early in its commitment to racial justice, helping predominantly men of color getting, and black men getting work on the waterfront in good union jobs. And in that mix in the 30s, we saw labor arts, labor education, and labor organizing. So by the time we hit World War II, people who had been bitterly opposed, big manufacturing, big business interests, at war with these militant union workers just a few years before, were now united in support of the war effort. We're going to support the war effort. They're making money off it. Workers are getting jobs. And we saw, Marina, a, a real, a huge increase in the population of the Bay Area for the war effort a huge increase in the working class population where so many men are going into the military. Hello, women. Wouldn't you like a job in a factory now for the first time? All you black people down there in East Texas and Louisiana, why don't you come on out here? We got a job for you. You Okies and Arkies who, you know, Tom Joad, Woody Guthrie, Chronicle, John Steinbeck, we have work for you now. An incredible shipbuilding industry here in the Bay Area, aircraft industry in L.A., so now you have this huge increase, and coming off of the 1930s union advances, you have a federal government that says, hello, employers, we're going to give you a lot of money to make the stuff we need for the war, 
And in return, we want you to work with and allow unionization in your companies without fighting them. So we also saw a, a vast increase in union membership in World War II in the war industries, which, by the way, Black people threatened to march on Washington to integrate, and Roosevelt said, okay, and he integrated them, desegregated these war industries. So now you have unions with thousands and tens of thousands of new members saying, we got to educate these people. What are unions? How do you function with any union? What's the point? What's the history? And so they said, we need some help educating. And they created this thing called the California Labor School. Opens in 1942 with ILWU, this left-leaning union. And in my research, I came to find out that every union in San Francisco supported this financially. And unions are like other points, other organizations in our society, points on a political continuum, more left, more center, more moderate. Everybody supported the California Labor School, and so did many employers. It was pretty amazing, but it was evocative of that wartime unity. So that's, what, that's what's behind it. And it starts out, Marina, with this, you and I, we had a, a talk a little while ago. I divided up the world of labor education into nuts and bolts classes, big picture classes. So the labor school starts as a nuts and bolts class. So what kind of things were offered? What are the nuts and bolts? So nuts and bolts means such things as how do you participate in a union meeting? And that might not seem like much, but if you don't know how to participate in a meeting, you're not going to be able to shape the life of your union. And right. there's something called Robert's Rules of Order. So classes in Robert's Rules of Order. I make a motion. I second the motion. We have discussion. We call the question. Let's vote. So the tools of d democratic unionism are part of these nuts and bolts classes. How do we address things that we don't like in the workplace? How do we make what's called or file what's called a grievance? What is the mechanism of advancing a grievance? How do we organize our fellow members to be active in the union? How do we organize to have good connections with people in the broader community? So it's interesting what you describe as nuts and bolts. I was thinking you were going to say, like, how to build a house, nuts and bolts. You're talking about how to basically be in a union, how to really be a participating member of a union. That's correct. And so nuts and bolts in that sense, how do you negotiate a contract? So this is separate from the question of vocational education, which we can also talk about. But the California Labor School is founded, therefore, a lot from the ILWU and then other unions experiencing this gigantic increase in membership saying, please help us orient our members to what's going on. And then that inevitably goes, Marina, over to some of these big picture questions. Labor history. What is the labor movement? Why do people feel it was necessary? In a social class divided society, what does it mean to have such a, a movement? What is our union's history? How come the Boilermakers right now in World War II have a separate segregated black local here in the Bay Area, and they are fighting to be admitted to the previously exclusionary white Boilermakers union, eventually successfully? Where do we stand in all this? What kind of unionism do we want to promote? And so that, that's where they begin. Can we just talk a little bit before we start about, I have a lot of questions about 
what else, what other subjects were offered, theater productions. But let's talk about that moment coming out of the Depression, the war, huge demand for labor, people migrating into this area. So very different power dynamics than we're seeing today, which is the labor was in demand. There was a lot of power. Historians talk about this period, what ended feudalism was the pandemic, right, where so many workers disappeared and died. I'm not sure that's the case, but anyway, there's a lot been written about it. It changed the power dynamics. So you needed labor. So labor was in demand. And that's how some of the organizing and basically it ended feudalism. We're in this moment also in the U.S. and particularly in the Bay Area, as you said, longshoremen, people migrating from the South, a very different, almost like transformational economic environment, right, in the city that enabled that. In addition to which, I imagine existence of the Soviet Union at the time, the paradise for workers, probably was a threat also in some ways. And so that moment, right, is enabled something like that. What, what do you think about that moment? I'm just thinking about today and how unthinkable it is, like where we are today, like we're trying to, we're beginning to talk about a four-day week, but it's a dream out there. And here's people negotiated 30-hour work week, which is incredible, so they can participate in theater and other kinds of things. Yes. After the plague, there was a labor shortage and peasant right. farmers were able to improve their conditions. And that we see that throughout in the Great Depression. Usually when the economy is down, people are cautious because they can get fired and replaced easily by someone who's desperate for work. On the other hand, when times are good and employers need workers, that's when they, you'll see again and again, that's when they push for raises. That's when they form unions. That's when they attempt to improve their conditions of life. And so, too, this, I think it's hard for us to really take in fully how abrupt and profound the change was from the mass unemployment of the Great Depression to the yeah. full plus employment of the war years. The New Deal programs of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, pushed forward by Democrats, by the big left organization at that time was the Communist Party, Socialist Party. People are pushing from many different directions for public works, public jobs, public works of art programs. And that really did help. Maybe 8 million people in the Great Depression got work through New Deal programs, but it still didn't end the Depression. But then vast war production needs wiped it out. And so now you're going from this position of really hurting to this position of which job do I want? And where do I go to get it? And boy, do I have a lot of bargaining power now, a lot. So I think that's this moment and uh, you're riding the waves of these successful, I'm going to call them insurrectionary strikes of the 1930s here and in other cities. And so working people have more power than they did before. I think this is a bit of a cliche phrase, but you always have to talk about the balance of power. And in this instance, if there's class tension, then it's the balance of power between working class people and employing class people. Yeah. So let's talk about the school. In addition to nuts and bolts about participating in the union and union organizing, what else? There's a young man of 28 who'd come from an activist family in the East. 
settled here. He would eventually go on to become a longshore worker and the political director of the Longshore Union. His name was Dave Jenkins. Dave Jenkins is appointed at age 28 to head the California Labor School. Six foot four, imposing guy, veteran activist. And he and others set about creating the school. And then, to their surprise and delight, people came to them. Again, remembering that in the 30s, we had artists drawing pictures of the general strike. We had people going down to picket lines and singing. We had people doing plays about these moments. People came to Dave Jenkins and the others and said, we want to teach here. Your school is a happening place to be. And, and we see visual arts, musical arts, theater arts, dancers, a whole wonderful mix of people, some of whom became famous. And Victor Arnatov as a painter, Gloria Unti as a dancer, Dave Sarvis, who was the head of their theater department. Really, there's a, Dave Jenkins' daughter, Becky Jenkins, is still with us, a very active person. She took classes there. She said it was just a fantastic institution. So if you think about that, then you've had, you have a whole rich view of array of arts classes, but they're being offered from a working class perspective. So we're going to have a chorus and we're going to sing about the fight for justice in the workplace. Or we're going to have an art class. We're going to paint a mural about black workers coming in, into the workforce and into the labor movement. And then also this history and political economy and how does politics work? So in other words, what we'll see in the California Labor School is what we now call liberal, a full range of liberal arts, quote unquote, uh, classes for working people. And if we wanted to drop back in history, higher education is for the rich. Other people, forget it. And working people had to fight step by step for taxpayer-supported free public education, for an access to a fully rounded education, for the kind of technical education that doesn't limit them to only technical skills and for the right to have museums open and parks open on Sundays where they had previously been closed. You have to work a six-day work week. That's the only day you can go out and have the education of going to the museum. So all of this is going to culminate that. And then, yes, we want classes and schools and education that help us to learn better how to fight for our rights. And like, you know that's controversial. People are going to attack it. We're going for it. We need it. So art existed in labor spaces. It wasn't a separate thing that was in museums or in art spaces or academia. It was in the same place. Yeah, Emmy Lou Packard was one of these artists. and She's not painting pictures of people sitting around drawing rooms in wealthy mansions. She's a beautiful picture of a California landscape. And there you see the farm workers there in the field, beautifully done. I just want to say something about the Soviet Union. So if you're on the left, and you know this at this point in history, the Soviet Union is, for most people of the left, is looking pretty good. But it's, it's also a threat, as you say, because people who are in power say, we better give them something or we might lose everything like they did over there. So in terms of the schools, I'm interested in that. Some of the things you're talking about, they almost seem unimaginable, like a general strike or demanding 30-hour week, or many other things, integrating arts education, not thinking about the arts or theater or philosophy or political economy as, some, as a luxury or a waste of time 
but essential to basically democratic education and much support from the public for this, which kind of seems almost unthinkable today. Would you say the demise of the school in the 50s was the beginning of that transformation in our own thinking about labor and deservedness and how we think about education? In Futures work, we talk about signals. What is a signal of something happening today that's a signal of something bigger? And so is this a signal, the demise of the school? And maybe talk about how it ended and why. Yes, I think it's a signal in different ways. So the school receives its funding. It's not a publicly funded institution until the powers that be in the education world say, oh, you can accept GI Bill education benefits. And so as the GIs come back from the war, now you have a source of public funding. And this allows the school to reach its heyday in the mid to later 40s. Dave Jenkins, in an interview that he did, estimates maybe 10 to 15,000 students a year in their good years, in their best years. And that's something really significant. But still, that's a private school. And so that's a, in that sense, it's a private-public hybrid. Funded by the unions, right? Funded by the unions and funded by the federal government. Well, my dad came back from war. He had to go to college, paid for by the government. So again, we have to remember, gigantic numbers of veterans are coming back, and they want to learn. And here's one place to go to learn. However, as part of the late 40s, we have something in the United States which we call the second Red Scare. The first Red Scare came after World War I, when the Russian Revolution happened and sent shockwaves around the world, and we had one of the two largest strike waves in U.S. history because of pent-up demand during the war, a huge strike in the steel industry in 1919. And it starts to look like um, some people actually fear, well, socialism coming here? If that's not really what I'm fearing, I'm fearing that my enterprise is going to be unionized. So they started something called the First Red Scare, and they arrested activists and radicals and deported those who were immigrants and so forth. So after World War II, now China has a socialist revolution, and this again sends shockwaves. And there is one, the other largest strike wave in U.S. history because people's wages, although prices were, there were wage and price controls imposed by the federal government World War II, but these companies were making huge money and people were saying, what about my wages? And by the way, they started bargaining really seriously at scale in World War II for benefits, this thing we call benefits. But after the war, people say, hey, we want a raise after all of that. And so there's another huge strike wave. And in response to that, Republicans are able to whip up opposition and limit the New Deal. And we enter into a period named after a senator from Wisconsin named Joe McCarthy called McCarthyism, and it's the second Red Scare. And so along with everybody else in the country, what, you were in the Communist Party and you were involved with the California Labor School? You weren't in the Communist Party, but you went to a school where there were some communists. And so wealthy people, the employers who had been funding the California Labor School, ran away from it as fast as they could. The government eventually takes away, I don't know when this happened, but the right to use GI benefits to go there. 
And again, even in its heyday, it's a controversial institution that's being opposed by more conservative political actors. Now those political actors, as opposed to the 30s and 40s earlier during the war, are in ascendance, and they begin to come after it. When you could lose your career, you could get fired from a public institution where you might also be teaching, forced to take a loyalty oath to, to get a job, keep your job at San Francisco State, for instance. And then they got, finally they shut them down in the mid-50s saying it was because uh, they were in arrears on their taxes. So it was a victim of McCarthyism, long story short. Yeah, so the school closed. And so what happens after that? Let's take it to overall, what is happening then in terms of labor and labor organizing, labor education? Where did people go who were behind the school? And did it move into other institutions or did it just die? Like people were so scared to participate and the narrative was changing at that point. Negative views of, although that's too early 50s, the heydays of the unions, probably 50s, 60s. So then we come into a very interesting period. Backing up a second, when we're looking at labor education, both in informal spaces and formal spaces, It's usually the more militant unions that push for them. The Knights of Labor back in the 1870s and 80s who had these wonderful community center assembly halls. Two, we want want these programs in taxpayer-funded institutions. So all of this is ebbing and flowing. And in the 50s, it's ebbing, even though there are institutionally-based labor education programs that are able to survive. And the people in the McCarthy era, they went underground, they withdrew, they could no longer teach, so they became a carpenter or they found other work. But most of them, one way or the other, lived to fight another day. And the legacy of the California Labor School then spins out down through the years. From their theater program emerged a group called the Actors Workshop, which was seen as an innovative teaching of acting institution eventually moved to the East. They had a performance series. And in that performance series, a young actor, activist named Ron R.G. Davis, Ronnie Davis came in 1959, founded the San Francisco Mime Troupe. There was a graphic arts workshop that existed as an independent entity. They grabbed the equipment from the labor school's graphic arts department and took it and they were there creating posters for the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement in the 1960s. Dave Jenkins, who then went on to work as a longshoreman and also then ascend through the union to a position of great power as their political director, and a man named Jack Olson, who had been involved with the labor school, was married to the famous working-class women's writer Tilly Olson. Jack and Dave, along with other people in 1971, founded our program, now called the Labor and Community Studies Program. Now we're in a taxpayer-supported institution, City College of San Francisco. 1973, we mark as our founding. And so this is our 50th anniversary year, the program that I'm now a retiree from. James Tracy, my successor, doing a wonderful job with it. And what I can say after talking to Helena Worthen, one of the person who knows our, our profession, if you will, our movement, labor education very well, is that there's an ebb and a flow. So right now in Republican-controlled states, 
they're going after labor education programs and killing them off today. And in other places where Democrats or relatively progressive people are in positions of power, they're growing. Arkansas's program is dead. Maine, Illinois, Massachusetts, California, growing in amazing ways. We have just had this tremendous victory in California now, not just UC Berkeley, UCLA, and a couple others, but every single University of California undergraduate campus is now going to have a labor program, a labor policy and research program. So they're hiring. And Helena, with whom I just spoke, she said, the programs that were adaptable during this period of crisis and attack that in the last decade or two of a piece with the attack on labor is an attack on labor education. She said the ones that were flexible and adaptable tended to survive. So our program used to be called labor studies. And I remember a young student coming to me one time and saying, Mr. Shields, oh, you have great classes, but I didn't take any of them because I thought labor studies meant you had to already be in a union. And this was a time when union density was declining the number of people in unions and labor had to be about organizing the unorganized. So how could we help that as a program? And we changed our name after some debate to labor and community studies, because a lot of people think of themselves first, I'm a member of the gay community or the black community or the Latino, Latinx community. We became labor and community studies. And now I'm seeing other labor education programs out there calling themselves labor and community. And that's a, I think that's a good connection to me. That's interesting. So you're seeing kind of growth of these kind of labor schools and labor education in California and other places. And are those mainly located within universities, within colleges, or what's the kind of ecosystem of these kind of schools? So our national organization, international, that it's based in the United States and Canada, it's called the United Association for Labor Education, known as UALI. And that Mm -hmm. represents labor educators who are based in colleges and universities. And there are maybe 40, there's an update on this study that Helena Wertha did in 2014 about the state of labor education, looking just at college and labor, university-focused labor education programs. And there's somewhere between 40 and 50 currently. In Canada, not so much. There are some candidates more union-based education. But the United Association for Labor Education brings together college and university-based labor educators, union-based labor educators. A union might have its own education department or its own training staff person. And then increasingly uh, in this realm of how do we organize the unorganized and how can labor education be part of that picture, we see something called workers' centers. So worker centers, the Filipino Community Center, the Chinese Progressive Association in San Francisco's Chinatown based there. The, the Women's Collective of Domestic Workers. And there are now, so it's often based in immigrant workers' communities who are doing non-traditional work on cleaning houses. I'm not working for the Hilton Hotel. How do you work a day laborer? How do you organize in that context? Black worker centers are now also a national phenomenon. So UALI now brings together people who are practitioners, researchers, scholars within this tripartite realm of labor education, college and university, 
union and worker center based. And do you see an uptick in, you said it ebbs and flows. So do you see a rise in interest, more programs happening overall? Where we are is that you have to look state by state and region by region. And in places where there are anti-labor, anti-organized labor politicians in power, you will tend to see the funding for labor education programs cut or eliminated. And unless and until the political equation in that state changes, that's going to be a problem. Helena, again, quoting, mentioned one of our colleagues whose program was eliminated, and she's as an individual out there doing trainings. People are surviving how they can. In other areas, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California, even though he was a social liberal, he was a fiscal conservative, and every year he would put into the budget big cuts to the University of California labor centers. It was consistent. And now that we've had consistent Democratic, and again, the Democrats aren't perfect. I wish there were more pro-labor people in the Republican Party. We don't see that these days, but we've had consistent Democratic leadership in California, which means labor has a voice at that table. Not only have we seen good funding to the existing UC labor centers, but we've seen them expand, as I mentioned earlier. And remember, we also have in California programs in the CSUs and in the community colleges. So there's an archipelago of college-based. Then the question is, how do we work? So my program, Labor and Community Studies, we had classes for students on their way to four-year colleges. The thing I was really proud about, as I mentioned, getting classes in job rights and some of this history and bigger picture education into vocational training programs, like our construction skills, city build program, or our hospitality program, or our child care workers program. And also unions and worker centers will call us and say, can you come in and do a training for us? So we function on those different cylinders. And then we also do conferences on, say, the issue of wage theft. And we have an art and culture program. Hey, Teray, echoing down from the labor school, we have a labor chorus and we have a workers oral history theater program, which we call Work Tales. I just saw that you actually did a theater production of Work Tales at the museum. Say more about that. I'm really interested in why you think, like, the connection between education and theater and labor. Marina, we go a long way from shut up and do what you're told to we're really interested in what you have to say about your life in general, as well as your work life. And so when I got the job, this is one of the, at City College, this is the, one of the things I instituted was this program. And it's very exciting because it's a collaboration with a particular union or worker center, which they want to help advance their training and education and awareness programs. La Colectiva de Mujeres used the collaboration as a vehicle for women's leadership training, for instance, and the Labor Archives and Research Center at San Francisco State. We have a wonderful Labor Archives at San Francisco State, long-headed by a woman named Catherine Powell, now her successor, Tanya Hollis, and banners, buttons, union meeting minutes, oral history interviews. Just in, they will come, they came to my classroom, Catherine did our labor history class, and she brought a dance card from a union sponsored dance, which was so interesting because it meant, number one, that a thing, such a thing as a dance card existed 
to regulate interactions between the sexes, the genders. Secondly, that unions sponsor dances at which they conform to that practice. So interesting. So the San Francisco State Labor Archives will come with labor and community studies teacher, paid staff, to the janitor's union, Local 87, based in the Tenderloin, and train the members who are volunteering for this work in how to do oral history interviews. So you'll train janitors who have immigrated from, in that particular union's example, from Yemen, from Latin America, from Asia. Train them on how to interview and work with them to develop a set of interview questions. Then they go out and they interview their fellow members. Those interviews are then stored in a local 87 SEIU Janitors Union collection at the Labor Archives for use by future scholars and students and teachers and activists. And then our program would work with the participants to sift through those interviews and pull out interesting anecdotal moments and put them together into a kind of collective tapestry storytelling performance where the actor union member performers would do a tableau, bring it to life, showing you their work movements, then step out of the tableau and talk to you about what it was like crossing the border to get into the country or flying in from Yemen, finding work as a janitor, how the union helped them, maybe some songs involved, and then perform for the union in question Artistically, could we have taken it in written plays or skits? Certainly we could have, but this is how we did it. And they were also always a cause for celebration when people saw themselves up on stage and their issues on stage. It was revelatory for them. What's the impact? Would you hear from janitors and workers who've done this and participated? What does it mean for them to be involved at that level? The union leadership will say, so for instance, the janitor's union wanted to use this collaboration as a way to involve people in an ongoing and current contract organizing campaign. And they felt mission accomplished. The hotel restaurant workers union local two wanted to educate newer member activists and staff on the history of a lockout and strike in 2004. They felt mission accomplished. So you could tell the audience is wrapped. They're applauding. The, nobody wants to go home afterwards. Everybody's after performance, having a cake, talking with each other. When we had student actors perform the piece, the workers' testimonies out at City College's Diego Rivera Theater, and a Chinese-American woman who's now a leader of the union, she came up to the student who played her and said, you look more like me than I do, she said. <laughs> and then they invited us. They said, we were busy that weekend. We want you to bring that play downtown and perform it down near our union hall so our members can see it. So always, and th that collaboration with La Colectiva de Mujeres, that was our longest. It lasted some eight years. And you could see women who were shy. You're an immigrant, learning English, working in the underground economy, attacks on immigrants, that culture. And you see them gaining more and more confidence by telling their stories up on stage, performing becoming leaders in the organization. So in general, mission accomplished. So let's now talk about what happened at City College, not in any depth because that book, there were so many things that happened. It lasted five years. So 
there was threat of accreditation being taken away from City College, which has really been embedded in community for since 1930s and was a real community institution and still is a community institution. And it must have been really painful for somebody like you who came and knew the history and the history of labor education and community engagement to be involved in this struggle. What did you see? And to me, of course, and the book talks about it, that somehow in that period that we're describing between the 50s and 2000s, the narrative about what education is about and what labor should be educated in, that narrative has changed, not for everybody, but there were foundations. And I think probably some well-meaning people who were looking at things and said, education, it's all about degrees. It's all about certificates. It's about economic value of education. And so they look at the city college and adult class classes and other kinds of classes, theater, probably music, you name it, and said, you're spending too much money. It's not needed. Focus on basically providing economically viable pathways and degrees for people. So. What was that? How did it feel for you to experience that? It was a very painful and difficult period. Let's go back to 2012. The New York Times had just selected City College of San Francisco as one of the 10 best community colleges in the nation. More importantly, our statistics showed that our students did better than almost any other community college in the state when they went to four-year colleges, as well or better than students in a four-year college for four years. So we were doing our job of educating, and we did it for our transfer students, whom we love. We did it for our vast array of vocational programs, from automotive to healthcare to childcare worker to hospitality, on and on. And we did it for our adult learners. We have a gigantic English as a second language program to help people learn English and acculturate. We had programs in social service agencies all around the city in senior centers all around the city. And heaven forbid, we had classes for people who just wanted to take a class for the love of learning. So that's an achievement. This long history of working people fighting for the right to learn, fighting for free public education. Again, with the freed people in the South, one of the first things they did after the war, Civil War, was form schools, demand funding for schools. So we were doing pretty well. And then this group called the Accreditation Commission for Community and Junior Colleges, the ACCJC, given their power by the Federal Department of Education, had been running a version of this old way of thinking. Education, especially for working class people, should be narrowly instrumentalist. It should get them a job, get them some skills, get them the heck out of there. And even used racial justice rhetoric. The longer you stay, the more likely you are to drop out. And so therefore, let's help them get through more quickly. But how they thought about implementing that was one, they took away our elected board. This is kind of the right-wing playbook, the Koch brothers, famous right-wing funders of a group called the Illumina Foundation, which then advised the ACCJC to run out this, what I would call anti-public education program. And they'd been doing it all up and down the state. The ACCJC, former president of the California Federation of Teachers, Marty Hittleman, wrote a paper, the ACCJC Gone Wild, which prepared us. But we were stunned and shocked 
having never received the sanction of any kind from any accrediting agency, doing well by all objective markers, they waltzed in in 2012 and said, we're going to shut you down because we don't like how you're governed. We don't like how you're spending your money. And we're taking away your elected board of trustees. We're appointing a single individual, the state community college board work, chancellor's office working with the ACCJC, took away democracy at the school. Yeah, it was interesting. As I was reading it, one of the complaints from the commission was that you basically were democratically governed. So democracy is slow. And nonetheless, by the markers that I mentioned earlier, we were succeeding nonetheless with that sloppy process. It was good. So they took it away. And then they imposed it. Administrator came in and said, yeah, you shouldn't have any more than 30,000 students because somebody in Sacramento thinks that. And we had 100,000 students, okay, in all the kinds of programs that I mentioned. And so began a long, hard fight. The ACCJC had credibility. Well, there must be something wrong. They're the people that assess these things. And it took us about a year, uh, given there was a, a community college district down the peninsula whose leader, president, chancellor fought the ACCJC, but they got that we didn't have that. So we had to fight back from the ground, floor up, students, faculty, active, community-supporting members, the, the disempowered board, some of them were involved. And after about a year, when we made changes that they wanted, and they said, again, we're going to close you down, at that point, people began to believe us that these people had an agenda. It was a bad agenda. The city of San Francisco sued them. The state of California regulated them in a way that it hadn't before, requiring more transparency because they were very sealed off from any transparency. And the city won. And all of those things eventually transformed, but transformed into us retaining our accreditation. But we lost thousands and thousands of students. Programs were shrunk. Programs were hurt badly. Our program was forced to shrink along with so many others. And only now, uh, they're still running that agenda, the people in the administration, but we just elected four, three members to the board of trustees who along with the fourth, we have a functional majority on the board finally, who will begin to turn that ship around. And so to make a long story short, Marina, they didn't like the fact that we advocated for equity for part-time teachers. And we're always up in San Diego talking about that. Yeah, the solutions were basically cut costs, eliminate benefits, Disempower teachers. Um, eliminate non-credit classes, eliminate adult education, which we took over that function from the city of San Francisco, from the Unified School District. As I was reading the book and conversations with you, I, what I was thinking is that I, there might have been bad intentions, but I saw it as this is the narrative that's been perpetrated by and promoted for decades now about what education is about, which is thinking in economic terms, do people get its efficiency, productivity, cost? So if you come from that perspective, that's how you measure it. So to me, it was less about, I think there is a basic kind of disagreement what education is for, right? Is it about democracy and promoting citizenship and participation at all levels? Or is it about basically creating workers for employers? with narrow set of skills. And we're still debating in part why we're doing this podcast and my conversation with John Shelton 
was similar that there's been a narrative change about what education is about and narrowing it down to basically the skills that employers can use. So this is the contemporary iteration of an old debate that goes back to when workers were denied education at all, formal education, to when they got it, but it was limited. And it comes down to what we characterize as the debate, the distinction between being a community college versus a junior college. Community college. I was thinking it's like community college, meaning embedded in the community and for the community, as opposed to a college for employers. And I also have to say that it shouldn't be seen in that either or fashion. Of course, we want to train our students so that they are capable employees. Of course, we want employers to be able to have workers who will work productively for them. We have those relationships, all those vocational programs usually have advisory boards of people from the various industries, but it's not an either or question. And in fact, employers have told us we don't want, because part of the impetus for this is the test taking, the test industry, which wants us all to be cookie cutter teachers so they can sell standardized tests. I'm the oldest of nine and I have several younger siblings who are teachers and some in the K-12 area. And this is bringing up to the college level what they've suffered for years, this teaching to the test fetishism, which is, again, there's money to be made in that. But we don't think it's an either or question. And the employers have, in fact, told us we don't want rote learner, good test takers. We want people who can work well in groups, who could cooperatively solve problems, who can read and write well, and who can express themselves in speaking. That's what we need. And we'll get them trained up onto our particular company's specific needs. So even employers are saying this model is impoverished and deficient and doesn't get us the kinds of employees we need. And then if we want to step back and say, yes, we want people to be good employees, but we don't want them only to be that. We want them to be critically thinking employees who, if they feel like they want to organize a union to improve that company, they can do. If they want to be involved in electoral politics, they'll be knowledgeably able to do. And if they want to express themselves and tell stories and write paintings and sing songs about their lives, about the things that are important to them, they should have the right to do that as well. We have just a little bit of time left. Thank you so much for joining us. But. I was, as I was walking to the museum, and you know what that area around the museum looks like right now, the Tenderloin, it's really sad. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to ask you, knowing what you know about the city and the politics of the city and what's happening now, despite everything and more interest in labor issues, union participation is still fairly low compared to those years of 50s and 60s. And particularly for San Francisco, what do you see and what do you hope for? What can be done? What do you think we should be working on, all of us? And people who wish the economy to be thriving and people to live their better lives. I think we need to be very concerned about affordable housing. And that needs to be key in the state, pushing to get even suburbs and affluent suburbs to build some amount of affordable housing. I think it needs to be looked at regionally. I think we need to look at mental health services that were cut off in the Reagan administration. They closed down these kind of prison-like mental hospitals, but never funded the halfway houses that were supposed to replace them. 
robust affordable housing programs, robust mental health and substance abuse treatment programs, job training programs of the kind that, that we described, good education, and people being able to get decent pay. You know, restaurant owners are saying they know they, they're hard pressed to pay more to their restaurant employees, but they know they should because they can't get any and their employees can't afford to live here near the restaurants where they're working. In some ways, these are old issues, right? Housing, health, mental health. Good jobs, good, that pay. Yeah. I'll just give you an example. James Tracy, again, my successor at Labor and Community Studies, he for years worked in the area of affordable housing with the group called the Community Housing Partnership in the Tenderloin. They are an interesting group in that they own buildings and manage them for formerly homeless people who now are housed and they train them and they brought our program to help train the tenants and how to co-manage the buildings and in how to advocate at the city and state level for better funding for affordable housing and homeless services. So that gives me hope. And that's exactly what we've been looking at. We've been looking at these enterprise forms, whether they're co-ops or community trusts or other public banks, basically different forms of creating businesses and enterprises that give people governance voice in, and they give them ownership and they give people stakes in those businesses. Like you, I think it's a very hopeful moment because more and more people are paying attention to this and there are more and more of these kinds of efforts that we are seeing. So we have room for the Community Land Trust, for Rainbow Grocery, and for the Unionized Hilton Hotel. I think unionized workplaces, we should consider them as part of this mix of more collaborative business models. And by the way, I just wanted to say, so in Futures work, as I said, we look at signals, but we also look at history because history is so important. The way we live now, we always think things were always this way, like you can't think differently. And what you're bringing up is not so long ago, 1940s, 1950s, it was a very different environment and thinking was very different and labor had power and people thought about education in a very different way. And that's why I think it's so important for people to actually learn history because yes. it opens to your mind and your imagination that things are not static and things can look very different. And that gives me hope. Yes. If at the high point, thus, if in Northern Europe, you're going to get 70, 80% union density. And here our high point was 35% in the mid fifties, 80 to 90% in factories. Now it's down to about 10, but still 20, 30% in the public sector. And those things can change as they did abruptly in the depression into World War II shift. I think that we're seeing again, a renewed interest in labor and organizing all these teacher strikes and graduate student strikes and barista strikes. Um, and some of it outside of the formal union strike. Yes, which has always been the case. You organize, when you, unions came out of groups of people organizing to build a better life for themselves, and then they may have taken a certain institutional form uh, within a certain legal framework that they helped create. But we always need to be open to innovative, new thinking, additional efforts to move this agenda forward. And I think that if we're looking for a kind of identifying marker, one of the things I would want to leave with in our conversation, Marina, which I've really enjoyed, if you look at the UC Berkeley Labor Center, they have a green economy 
program that's looking for what labor calls just transition. And I would have put this to AI, oh no, chatbots. You come to find out that chatbots are going to be used to de-skill so somebody can get, the, the operative will get the chatbot to do the work that formerly a creative worker would do. This goes back to England's early industrialization. And every time you oppose the way technology is imposed by corporate or more narrowly greed-based yeah. folks, they say, oh, you're a Luddite, you're a Luddite. But the Luddites actually had a very sophisticated political program. They said, we're not opposed to factories taking away our skilled cloth-making jobs, but we want to have a say in how they're designed. And we want to have a say in our working conditions. Oh, and by the way, we want the right to vote. And then in their desperation, when those efforts were crushed, some of them burned down some of the factories, and that's all they're remembered for. But the Luddites actually were very politically sophisticated and advanced. So when we're looking at chatbot, when we're looking at the de-skilling, this de-skilling of work means you can pay the worker less, and therefore only they need less education, fast food worker versus a skilled cook in a hotel or sit-down restaurant. We have to think about, and this green transition program, that working people have the right to be at the table deciding not whether or not we advance technologically, but how we advance technologically and doing so in a way that helps everyone. And so this Just Transition program, Teamsters and Turtles, bringing labor and environmentalists together is, I think, a very hopeful indication of a possible mutually beneficial future direction for our society and our world. Thank you so much, Bill, and thank you for the work you're doing, and thank you for bringing the California Labor School to attention and everything else that you're doing. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.